1: And And I'm Sue Peterson And uh, we are from Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center And we're pleased to present to you the final uh, lecture for the Osher Mini Medical School um, course on trauma care And we have two wonderful speakers tonight Uh, Dr. Aaron Kornblith is an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics who works both at San Francisco uh, General Hospital and at UCSF Benioff uh, Emergency Department, where he's the director of ultrasound there. And um, his wife, Dr. Lucy Kornblith, is a trauma fellow at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and their topic tonight is innovations in trauma care. thanks for the introduction thanks for everyone for coming out this evening and joining us and um, hearing a little bit about what we do and what we do a lot of every day and um, so this is just a, a small little piece of I think what we like to talk about and do on a regular basis so start off I, I have no unfortunately financial disclosures to report um, And usually, um, oftentimes, innovations start with a case, um, and they usually start with an individual. So at San Francisco General, um, it's a common mechanism of injury for a pedestrian to be uh, struck by an automobile, so much so that in the hospital, it's just referred to as a PVA. So if you're walking around the hospital and someone comes up to you and says, oh, there's a PVA down in the emergency department, everyone knows what that lingo means, the pedestrian Pedestrian versus automobile. Um, and unfortunately, we see this quite often here in the city. The one thing is, um, with kids, our, our mechanism of injury and the way they get injured is a little bit different. So in our case here, we have a six-year-old little girl who was crossing the street with her mother when unfortunately a car came from the right-hand turn lane and hit her. In adults, we oftentimes see the bumpers hit the knees to start with, but kids, it's a little bit different because they're shorter, so it usually hits them first in the abdomen. But it's not just in San Francisco. This here is um, this is a map. It's a visual representation of pediatric deaths per capita by country, and so you could see it's um, it's flexed and it's thinned in different areas of the world. But interestingly, the leading cause of death and disability of children worldwide, regardless of what country you're in, is trauma. So bringing it back here to the United States, um, you could see across the top of this chart here. I'll try to keep this down to not too much uh, cat kind of put. So here, here we have a MVT that 's motor vehicle transport related, and you could see um, this over here on the, the the top part of the chart here is um, age groups, so this is age and years um, and, and then this is a ranking of um, the top reasons for deaths here in the United States in those ages and you could see right across the top in gold here is this Uh, motor vehicle related injuries so trauma and then right below it again here then these white you could see other injuries are extremely common as well so again here in the U.S. we we see quite a bit of trauma in kids unfortunately and since there's really no vaccine available for trauma-related injuries, we've slowly been sort of chipping away at it with primary sort of things like making the roads safer, putting on seatbelts. But unfortunately, on a weekly, maybe even almost daily basis, we still see plenty of trauma here in San Francisco General and Children. So once trauma happens, that's really when the clock starts ticking, and that's when a lot of us that work in the emergency department or in the world of trauma get kind of excited, get nervous. That's when things start happening. And and we really bring up this idea of what's called the golden hour. And and this was a term that was coined um, by a Dr. Cowley, who, who was actually, if you've ever heard of shock trauma, that's the big trauma center in Baltimore, and he coined this term back in the 1970s, and what I think he really saw was that the sooner he got to making a diagnosis and a treatment, the better outcomes his patient has. So even though this golden hour probably doesn't really fall at 60 minutes and then we just give up and you're you're done, I mean, it's really more than that. It's really what we see is time is pretty precious. And so when you watch those reality TV shows where things are moving quick and that kind of thing, it's not done, I don't think, just for the drama. It's actually done a little bit in the emergency department. So if you've ever been a patient with us in the emergency department before, you've seen that it's it happens pre, almost like a organized chaos a little bit, and how things move so fast. Unfortunately, though, time is not the only thing we do think of. We also think of our diagnostics and therapeutics. So, one of our diagnostics we commonly use. Um, is CAT scan. So, if anyone's ever read Atul Gawande's Overkill, this was um, in the New Yorker in 2015. He talks about um, this perspective of overtesting, which leads basically to harm in patients. Um, and so, if you take a step back for a second and you think, you know, this patient comes in, just put him through the CAT scanner. Let's see what's going on. Well, the CAT scanner or this computed tomography that we do—it's the big X-ray machine. Um, there's radiation associated with it. So for a a CT scan or a CAT scan of the abdomen, it has 10 millisieverts of radiation. And that's about worth about three years of background radiation, all within a matter of minutes. So that's like living on planet Earth for three years and just taking on the sun right there in a few minutes. And and what researchers have found and um, what they've deduced is that The more radiation you take on, the higher incidence of malignancy or cancer. And one of our researchers here, Dr. Smith-Beinman here at UCSF, in 2009, actually gave rough estimates as to what your risk of getting of your risk of cancer from a CAT scan. So, in a 20-year-old young woman who has a CAT scan of her abdomen, there's a one in 500 chance that she will get a malignancy from that CAT scan. So we think about these things as we're kind of running you through the, this like chaotic sort of trauma bay. The other thing we think of is we do invasive procedures. And these procedures sometimes come at cost as well. They're painful. They can cause infection. They can lead to more procedures and morbidity later on. This here, um, this is a little bit of a dated picture. This, um, this picture um, shows what's called a diagnostic peritoneal lavage. And I personally have never done one of these before because it's th- that dated. What it is is after someone gets hit in the abdomen by a car or some sort of traumatic mechanism, what is done is a small incision is made in the abdomen and then a catheter is placed and they look to see if there's any blood that's pulled out of the abdomen, meaning that maybe there's a liver that's injured or a spleen that's injured and it's bleeding into the abdomen. And then they decide from there whether they should go to the operating room or not. Luckily, though, we don't do DPLs anymore. And instead, we kind of bring it all back to the trauma bay. And in our trauma bay, This is where all the innovation really happens. So no DPLs, but there is a lot of other equipment you can see in this room. And there's... Tons of equipment and a ton of people when we have a trauma going on. And what you'll see if you ever do show up for some reason at San Francisco General is sometimes it's even hard to crowd control because there's so many people and there's so much going on. So every piece of equipment in this room is extremely important to trauma care. And there's one piece of equipment in particular I just wanted to draw your eye to. And it's this piece of equipment right over here in the corner of the trauma bay. And that's an ultrasound machine. It's the, the same kind of ultrasound machine that obstetrics uses to look at babies. The same sort of ultrasound machine that a cardiologist would look at your heart with. And the same sort of ultrasound machine a radiologist would look at your gallstones with. But instead, here it is in the trauma bay. So how did we get... To having this ultrasound machine sitting in our trauma bay Well, it actually all starts with bats Um, And and in 1794, um, Dr. Spolinozny, um, a, a physiologist, actually studied the physics of bats And how that sound and echolocation actually worked But we took it a step further from there, and the Curry brothers discovered this idea of the piezoelectric effect. And that's this idea of taking material and hitting it or adding a mechanical stress in a certain way so that it actually produces electricity. And so that's what we use inside our ultrasound transducers. There's these small crystals that use this piezoelectric effect that then convert the signal from sound back into electricity so it can be read through the ultrasound machine. It's also probably the main reason um, I tell our residents not to drop the transducers because this principle is extremely expensive. In 1915, Langveen, a a physicist here, he's featured right next to Einstein and in in 1912 after the uh, Titanic sank he invented the first hydrophone. To detect both icebergs and submarines. So, again, using like a transducer sort of to pick up sound. But then that technology was eventually converted to medicine here in 1942 by Dr. Dussek. So, he's a neurologist um, and he tried to look at the brain. It really didn't work out that well. um, So, we don't really use the ultrasound to look in the head anymore because the skull gets in the way. But soon afterwards, Dr. Ludwig, in 1948, started looking at gallstones. And we've been looking at gallstones ever since. And then the last one here is from the University of Colorado, Dr. Howard and Dr. Holmes. And they are who invented brightness mode of the ultrasound machine. And I'm going to be able to show you a few images of what brightness mode or B mode looks like on an actual image. But machines were big. Machines were huge, actually. So this is... This is a baby. This is the machine. And you can see it's, it's, it's quite large. Um, so finding space in the trauma bay is almost impossible for something like that. So technology, though, is caught up with ultrasound. And so now we have actually have ultrasound machines that can fit in your pocket. Ultrasound machines that are given out at medical schools for new medical students. Ultrasound machines that are actually being sort of dubbed the stethoscope of the future. Um, We call it point-of-care ultrasound, and we've played around with different names for it, but we call it point-of-care ultrasound because we use the ultrasound at the point of care, meaning the physician, it's no longer a radiologist, it's no longer a cardiologist that does the ultrasound, it's the physician that's actually talking to you at the bedside that's performing the ultrasound, and it's changed the way we do it. And there's a few examples throughout the world of how this is currently happening. On the left-hand side of the screen there, that's the space station, and they're doing some sort of ultrasound experiment there. In the middle there, we see um, a rural environment where they're doing some obstetrical ultrasound. And then all the way there on the right, or your right, um, is uh, in the battlefield. But there's a lot of naysayers. It's hard hard to break bad habits, and um, the stethoscope doesn't want to just disappear. So this is a quote, Notwithstanding its value, I'm extremely doubtful because its beneficial application requires much time and gives a good deal of trouble both to the patient and the practitioner. It's kind of similar to what's been going on with ultrasound. It's, a, it's hard to turn over some of the old stones that have really been left behind. So in 1816, Dr. French... Or excuse me, a French physician, Doctor Ray Lenake, was inspired by children who were communicating by tapping a pin at one end of a long piece of wood and listening to the other end. And he ended up rolling up a piece of paper into what he called a choir and putting the cylinder down on a woman's chest and invented the stethoscope. And he felt this protected the modesty of the patient quite well, instead of putting his own ear down on the chest of the patient. <laughs> So this quote that I just read is actually talking about the first stethoscope that came out, and it was a quote that was written in 1829. So bringing a little bit back to the case here, this is a child with a seatbelt sign. Um, after a high-speed motor vehicle accident, um, ecchymosis or bruising develops on the skin, um, usually in the area of a seatbelt. And This means a lot to us as physicians. It means, one, there's injury to the skin, but two, it means there was a high enough impact that there could be injury underneath where we're seeing the bruising. So it means I usually have to dig a little bit deeper. Now... When you get up in the morning And leave the house, you have to decide What kind of tools you're going to go to work With and use, and I have to do something Similar, so what do you reach for when you Leave the house? I don't know if you use your Keys, water bottle Your cell phone, your wallet Hot sauce I don't know if that's too early for that Joke Um, But then as a physician, I also Have to decide what I reach for So here I have a stethoscope I have um an x-ray plates, I have an electrocardiogram or EKG leads, I have a telephone, I could just call for help um, and then on the way, on the far side of the screen there that's an ultrasound transducer. And what I usually reach for in a case like this would be an ultrasound to perform a focused assessment with sonography in trauma, also referred to as a FAST exam in trauma. And what the ultrasound is actually doing is I'm looking at one, two, three four different sonographic windows or spots on the abdomen that could show me where blood can be accumulating in the abdomen. Instead of doing that diagnostic peritoneal lavage where I cut you open, put in a needle, and see if I could draw out blood, instead now I'm using this technology to see if I could see blood inside your abdomen. And what it looks like is this. This is what a fast exam would look like in a child in the right upper quadrant. So I'm looking at the liver and the kidney here. And what the image actually looks like is this. This is an actual ultrasound clip. And what we're looking at is that's a piece of liver. That's a piece of kidney. That's the diaphragm or the muscle that sits between the abdomen and the lung. This is a special space referred to as Morrison's pouch. This is a potential space where fluid can accumulate like blood. And then lastly, you can actually make out the spine. And each of the individual vertebrae, you can see there's a little bit of a pattern there, the echoes going through the spine. So this is a normal exam. I do not see any fluid in that space. That's in contrast, so I want everyone to take one look right here. That's in contrast to this scan. So again, I see a liver see a kidney. I could see spine shadows. But in this Morrison's pouch, this potential space, I'm now seeing anechoic or dark fluid, and that's blood. So that would have me worried. That would be a positive DPO. Similarly, if I don't see it in the right upper quadrant, I'll look suprapubically or right down by the bladder. And what it looks like is this. This is the bladder. So, this is a fluid filled structure. You could see fluid comes out dark on an ultrasound. And I'm looking right behind it here to see if I see any fluid. And I didn't on this image. Now, that's in contrast to this image. In this image, I could see bladder, but I could see right behind it a bunch of free fluid collecting in the abdomen. It's actually so much free fluid, it's starting to pull away, and you could see the rectum sitting here right in between it. So these are two positive FAST exams. And I would say, I would argue, that it's pretty easy to pick those up. However, FAST exams aren't used a lot in kids. So this was a survey that was done in the late 2000s. Um, adult EDs are using them about 74% of the time, but pediatric EDs are using them about 14% of the time. And so the question is, is how could we change that? So how do we take this theory and actually move it to the different trauma bays? So we start off by doing some research. And so this is a cross-section of a person. The head is over here. The feet are all the way down over here. And what we're looking at here is the rib cage with the diaphragm. And we're taking that same angle that we kind of looked up when we were looking at the right upper quadrant. Now what's interesting about this study, this was done in the late 1990s, and what they found was that no matter what type of injury, whether it was your spleen on your left side, your liver on your right side, bowel down below, the first area that blood would collect in an adult patient would be right here in that Morrison's pouch area that I showed you in the right upper quadrant. But after working at a children's hospital for a long period of time, I realized it wasn't the same thing in kids. And it looked like instead of fluid collecting here in the right upper quadrant, where it was collecting instead was right behind the bladder, like where I showed you in that one previous image. So that's what we looked at. We looked at almost 2,000 kids and performed almost 1,000 fast examinations in children with abdominal trauma. Of those, we had nearly 100 positive examinations. And of those 100 positives, we found this. We found that the majority of them, almost 80%, were positive in the suprapubic area. So again, something a little bit different than what we were seeing in adults. So it changed the way we start looking at how we do the FAST exam. Again, just like in adults, it really didn't matter what sort of injury it was. We always found the first positive was in the suprapubic area. So, we've now done some research, but how do we move this theory to the trauma bay? We also have to educate. And I've spent a great majority of the last few years educating. The American Academy of Pediatrics was here just a month ago, and um, there were 10,000 of the AAPs Closest pediatricians here in San Francisco. And I had the opportunity to teach 50 of them how to use ultrasound um, in kids. And so we've been taking this little show on the road and we do it across the country and across the world. It's brought me as far as Brazil um, and all the way back here to the States where I do this on a regular basis. Lastly, to bring it to the trauma bay, we need to talk about the future because we do still need to stay ahead. This here is the same ultrasound, but now done with an ultrasound radio contrast dye. So we infuse a little bit of radio contrast dye that's only seen on an ultrasound machine into the blood. And then we're able to not only see Where we think the injury might be Based off of blood being in the abdomen But we might actually see where the liver is cracked Or where the spleen is bleeding Um, And so this is sort of the future of where we're headed So to bring it all back to our 6 year old That was hit by the car Unfortunately she had a positive fast exam So we needed to move pretty quickly um, And that's where my wife takes over so I'll introduce Lucy Kornblith here. She'll be taking over after the diagnostics are done.
0: Thank you. Good evening. I'm Lucy Kornblith. I have the great fortune of being married to Aaron Cornbleth and getting to share his love for trauma and injury and also research and innovations. Uh, I'm a surgeon. I did my general surgery training here at UCSF, uh, and I've stayed to do subspecialty training at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital in trauma. Uh, And additionally, and probably the main reason why I'm here to talk tonight is because I'm a researcher, and I consider that aspect of my career as rewarding as the clinical work and the surgical work that I do. So tonight, I want to focus on some of the major advances in the therapeutic side of the story and how we care for injured patients from the standpoint of a trauma surgeon, and specifically some areas that I am particularly very interested in. Um, there's many advances in the field of trauma, and uh, many of them are evidence-based. Many of them are actually not evidence-based. But some of the greatest advances that have been made in the last 10 to 15 years are actually related to bleeding patients and how we deal with them. And there's been really a paradigm shift uh, in how we treat bleeding injured patients. Uh, So I'll start by also telling you that I have no financial disclosures. Again, unfortunately, neither of us do. Um, My disclosures, though, are that I am a researcher, and I do believe in innovation and change, and that I love blood and guts. um, And therefore, I just want to warn you, there will be some um, gross photos. So uh, if it's too much for you, you can close your eyes for that slide. Um, Now, I will talk and mention a couple different products that we use use as trauma surgeons that have advanced care. Uh, and I mention them not because I have any skin in the game, uh, but only because we use them in real life in bleeding patients, uh, and I find interest in them because of that. So I just want to start by reminding you of something similar to what Aaron showed in a pediatric population, but this is um, 10 leading causes of death in the United States, all ages. Uh, All races, both sexes This is put out by the CDC every two years They haven't put out their 2016 one yet But this is from 2014 And it quantifies the ten leading causes of death In the United States And it highlights why this is such a big deal And why we dedicate our lives to this Um, If you look at the blue uh, The chart's a little bit hard to look at But I'll, I'll tell you what it is So the blue is unintentional injury the green is suicide, and the red is homicide. Uh, and, if, and if you look closely at this, what you really see is that injury overall, however you want to look at it, uh, accounts for the majority of deaths in the young, productive age group in the United States. So this is from age 1 to age 44, number one cause of death. Um, and if you lo- if you take this further and you look at a worldwide version of it, the number of death from injury, it eclipses the deaths from HIV and AIDS and TB and malaria combined. It's huge. Um, and so what this really means to me is that trauma is a public health issue of really epidemic proportions. And if you put it into, like, fact terms, it's the leading cause of death in children in the United States, like you saw. It's the leading cause of death in pa- people that are age 1 to 44. Uh, It has more effect on productive life uh, years lost than any other disease worldwide. And the economic cost of 50 million injuries 10 years ago when they first evaluated these numbers was $406 billion a year. Um, It's nearly doubled since then. So how do we figure out how to address this public health issue? Now, first, we need to know why these people are dying from trauma. Like, why can't we save all these people? Uh, This photo is actually from the Boston Marathon. Um, And one thing that stands out to me when I look at it is all this blood. Uh, The number one cause of preventable deaths from people that die of injury is uncontrolled bleeding. So... What we need to do to address this and to decrease these deaths is to research it. Um, Trauma research is incredibly interesting because treatment of injury in the civilian setting, the setting that most of us live in, is strongly influenced by battlefield medicine. Um, And the experience of military uh, trauma providers and trauma surgeons who come back to civilian practice and bring with them new techniques and innovations that they've had uh, in times of war. Uh, Things you may have heard of like tourniquets, special wound dressings, and blood transfusion techniques that we use in trauma centers in civilian settings they all come from the military settings uh, and some of the most dramatic recent innovations really can be attributed to afghanistan and, I- and iraq uh, Now, it's clear that war kind of brings this urgency to trauma research, but outside of wartime, trauma research really receives little attention. Uh, And within the context of years of potential life lost, if you look at the NIH support for trauma research, so for HIV, it's $3.51. For cancer, it's $1.65. For trauma, it's 10 cents. Um, despite what I showed you about the leading cause of death in the United States and worldwide. So needless to say, the level of spending doesn't really address the burden of the problem right now, uh, given sort of the size and impact on our society. So we battle on, uh, and this is the new Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. We bring the science kind of from the battlefield to the lab and then to the treatment of civilian patients here who are injured. Okay, here's your warning. Here comes the, some of the photos. <laughs> um, so I focus on research that goes into preventing bleeding. Why do I do that? Because bleeding is the number one cause of death of these patients, and die, And these, th- that's the number one cause of death worldwide. Now, what you need to know for simplicity's sake is there's two kinds of bleeding, and you see them depicted here. The one on the left here is what we term non-coagulopathic. It means that it's a surgically treatable bleeding. There's bleeding from arteries and veins that can be directly and anatomically controlled. There's a hole in a vessel, and I can suture it closed. Um, For example, this leg that is mangled, there are holes in the vessels here that the patient is bleeding from, and with amputation of this leg, the bleeding will stop. Conversely, there's a different kind of bleeding we deal with. This we is termed coagulopathic. Coagulopathic bleeding means a failure to make clot at the levels of the capillaries, which are the most distal beds where the arteries meet the veins. And this kind of bleeding is incredibly dangerous uh, because it results in a diffuse bleeding. It's a systemic disease that cannot be controlled surgically. And because it's a systemic dysregulation of your body's ability to form clot, you don't just bleed from the actual injured site, but you bleed from sites that weren't injured at all. And this is someone's brain. Uh, They had a traumatic brain injury. And there is not a vessel here that's bleeding. It's the entire surface of the brain that's bleeding. And you can't put a stitch in that. Um, So again, it's really this systemic dysregulation. So this coagulopathic bleeding, that's the kind of bleeding that I research, and I'll kind of tell you why. In contrast to the other cause of bleeding, the surgical cause of bleeding, this kind of bleeding leads to significantly worse outcomes in our patients. So our research has shown that it leads to um, way higher amounts of blood transfusion longer stays in the hospital and in the ICU, higher rates of organ failure after the injury, and perhaps most importantly, a four times higher death rate. Uh, And and these photos, this is what we see, really. Um, So there's nothing we can do to physically fix this, which as a surgeon is really uncomfortable, because I like to fix something. Now, if you go back and you remember our patient, the six-year-old girl that was hit by the car, she's gotten the FAST scan, it's positive for bleeding in her abdomen, concerning for intra-abdominal injury. In the trauma bay, her heart rate gets faster, she's getting sicker, her vital signs get worse. Her injury, combined with her vital signs, combined with the fact that her FAST is positive for bleeding in her abdomen, tell us that two things need to happen. One, she needs to go to the operating room to treat that left-sided bleeding, that bleeding where there's an actual hole that I can fix. And number two, we have to worry that she could have the other kind of bleeding, the coagulopathic bleeding that I can't fix with suture. Um, And we need to consider all the available treatments we have for coagulopathic bleeding. And so that's what I want to talk to you about. So to talk about that, um, I'm going to get down to a little bit of the science, and I'm going to try not to bore you too much. This is the clotting cascade, as we learn it in science classes and medical school, Um, and the exact details of which you don't even really need to look at. I'm not going to talk about the details. There's two pathways. They're separately activated, and in the end, they form clot, Um, Now each step of this pathway is based upon the function of a protein And a protease, which is basically an enzyme that breaks down a protein so it can function And this cascade has undergone decades of biochemical science backing it Um, But it's actually an incredibly simplified version of what is really involved in clot formation And it probably looks a whole lot more like this Um, with multiple interconnected proteins and proteases and cofactors and regulators and co-regulators and all this word salad um, to create this very complicated set of pathways that leads to clot formation. And you can imagine that if one of these pathways goes awry and is injured, uh, the entire system can fail and the person might not make clot. And in trauma, Um, we now know that failure of this natural process of forming clot at a location of injury uh, can lead to uncontrolled bleeding and this video gives sort of a basic um, graphic to what happens so we researched this in humans and animals to identify some causative links to make, then, targeted treatments. And that's really the goal. I mean, I do want to figure out why this happens and how this happens, but I want to figure it out so that I can treat it. Uh, So I'm going to just share with you where we are in the understanding of the process that should end like this but doesn't. And to do this, I'll take you back to the most elemental understanding that we have. So from that widely complex cascade that I showed you, basically there's two things in the end you need to form clot that that cascade leads to. You need a scaffolding, which looks like this, like thin pieces of hair. It's it's a protein called fibrin. And then you need platelets which are circulating blood cells that I'm sure everyone's heard of, to make a plug onto that scaffolding. And when you have those two things, it forms a clot. If anything leading up to that formation goes awry, then the clot isn't properly made and, and the patient will continue to bleed. So this is out of a recent um, 2016 Blood jour- uh, Journal article that very nicely kind of documents our community's current understanding of what causes this to happen improperly, specifically in trauma. Um, So I realize that this looks pretty complex, and probably the most important thing I want you to notice here is the lack of one single thing that ultimately leads to this bad kind of bleeding, but rather that there's these multiple different (coughs) pathways that end in this. Um, And why do we care about the individual pathways? Well, because they're all very different. And they're going to have different treatments. And so we need to figure out the different pathways so that we can intervene upon them and have therapeutic targets. Uh, So I'll show you how the trauma leads to basically these four final pathways here that then lead to that bad kind of bleeding. So the first one that I want to explain um, has led to a very dramatic change in the way we treat injured patients that come in bleeding. Uh, So when injured patients come in bleeding, they generally have a low blood pressure because they've lost circulating blood volume. So we no longer give them large amounts of IV fluids, which is what we used to do. When someone used to have a low blood pressure, we would give them a huge amount of IV fluid to bring their blood pressure back up. Well, we found that that led to something really bad. Um, It would make the bleeding worse because the IV fluid dilutes out the clotting factors in the blood, and it's cold. And when it's cold, those enzymatic reactions don't happen normally. So let's talk about what's in blood. Blood's composed of three things, basically. Plasma, which is like the liquid portion of the blood. It carries all the proteins. It has all your clotting factors. It's about half of your blood volume. Then you have this very small percentage of platelets that are kind of the ignored uh, part of this. And then you have the red blood cells. The red blood cells carry the oxygen around, Uh, and deliver the oxygen to to all of your organs. And that's about half of the blood as well. Um, So now, as I said, our research has shown that giving the IV fluids when someone is bleeding will only make the bleeding worse. And it turns out also, when you think of someone getting a blood transfusion, usually what they're getting is just these red blood cells. And it turns out if you treat a bleeding patient that has low blood pressure with just these red blood cells, they'll also continue to bleed because they're not getting any of the clotting factors. So a a long sort of series over the past 10 years of military and civilian research has proven that the closer you get to transfusing an equal ratio of the plasma to the, uh, the ratio of platelets in blood to the ratio of red blood cells in blood, the better the patients do, and they stop bleeding. Now, based on that, our center and every trauma center in the United States and uh, most level one uh, trauma centers around the world have a protocol now to deal with this. Um, It's called a massive transfusion algorithm. And anytime someone is bleeding to death after injury, we follow this protocol for the transfusion of products to help recapitulate that ratio of what's in your blood. Now, what I want you to look at is this portion right here. Of the protocol. So basically, what this is saying is that you're going to get an equal amount of FFP stands for fresh frozen plasma, that's the plasma part with the clotting factors, to an equal amount of red blood cells, that's the oxygen carrying part, to one platelet with even numbered packs, which essentially will then equal the ratio of platelets that comes in that blood. And why do we need an algorithm for that? I mean, it seems so simple, right? Um, Why can't we just keep track of that in our heads and make sure we're transfusing the ratio? Well, for one, we can't because I'm busy operating when I'm doing this. Um, And for two, you know, these patients that have this kind of bleeding, they often end up receiving 100 units of blood products. So... You really, in order to do that correctly, you need an algorithm to save them. So, we learned about this. This is iatrogenic resuscitation injury. I told you about this. This is where, if we give IV fluids, we dilute out the blood and the patients bleed. What's interesting is it's not related to trauma, right? This is related to what we as practitioners due to the patients, in order to try and treat what has happened. So it's actually off by itself. The things that are related to trauma are these things, right here. So I'll start by just mentioning hyperfibrinolysis. So what, what is that? Uh, to understand what it is, you just have to think about checks and balances. Our bodies are pretty remarkable in everything we do, and each process has a check and balance. Uh, Now, the balance to clot formation is that every one of us has a natural anti-clot mechanism um, and an ability to break down the clot we form, and it's completely necessary for survival. Um, It creates sort of a constant homeostasis so that if you bump your arm and you form some clot, you're not going to just continue to clot and clot and clot and clot. Your body will stop that, and then once the bleeding has stopped, it'll break down the clot. The problem is that trauma affects this process as well and it can overactivate the process leading to what is called hyperfibrinolysis so that the body's ability to break down clot is on like hyperdrive and it'll just go everywhere it sees clot and break it down and if you look closely at what's happening is basically so fibrin scaffolding i told you is one of the main things you need these two proteins come together they hook up with the fibrin and they break it in half. And that breaks down the clot. Now research has shown that there's a drug called transexemic acid. We call it TXA. Um, It does something interesting. It binds right here on this protein and then this complex can't bind the fibrin anymore and break it down. So. It leads to less bleeding in people whose um, clotting breakdown system is overactive after injury. And it got a lot of press in about 2011 because there was an international trial that looked at it. And this is just a clip from um, a cartoon that was put out for the news from 2011. (laughs) so ignited? Uh, give me blood. <laughs> <laughs> A blood stabilizer given within three hours of injury it reduces the risk of bleeding to death by 30%. Check out the crash tube track. <sighs> <laughs> I liked that. Um, so essentially what they found was that this drug in patients who have an overactive breakdown system from the injury decreases the risk of bleeding to death by 30% as long as it's given within three hours of injury. What they don't say is that if you give it after three hours of injury, the patients actually die more. Um, So that's really important Um, and so based on that, our center also has a protocol for use of this drug, and this protocol gets activated once that massive transfusion protocol is activated. They come hand in hand. So, what you don't have to read this, but what I want you to show you show you is that we give the TXA to adult trauma patients. It's not studied in kids. We periodically will use it in children, uh, but it's truly not studied in them for this purpose it must be within the first three hours of injury. And actually, the patients that did the best in that study, it was given within one hour of injury. Kind of going back to that critical nature, the earlier we intervene, the better. Um, And then the patient has to be in what's called hemorrhagic shock, uh, which is defined by protocol as a systolic blood pressure less than 75. They're, They're bleeding, and they're unstable. Okay, so I talked about these two things. So then there's this. Uh, let's talk about this. Clot, um, Decreased clotting factor activity that's caused by the trauma. Now, actually, I've kind of already mentioned one way we treat this. Uh, when when there's excessive bleeding and we think there's a clotting factor deficiency, we give back human clotting proteins that were lost in that plasma part of the blood. That's why we give those even ratios of the blood. Uh, But more recently, a lot of research has gone into examining how we can take the human clotting factors from that plasma portion of blood and turn it into a drug that we can use. And why would we want to do this? Well, if we can get a recombinant protein from this, then we don't have to expose people to bloodborne illness, which of course is very low now, but it still exists. And perhaps someday we don't even have to rely on the blood, the blood donation of people at all, which becomes an incredibly precious resource, especially when we're talking about giving one patient 100 units of blood. Um, so potentially at some point we could get to the point where you can take the proteins in here, turn them into a drug, and then just give them. So what you're looking at here is an actual isolate of fibrin, which is that scaffolding I talked about, one of the two important things you need to make clot. It's called rheostat. It's actually pretty new. It's a fibrin concentrate, and we've started using it at San Francisco General just in the last six months. Okay, now I'll finish with my very favorite part, so platelets. Um, they are underrepresented in this area of research But if we go back to remember the two things I told you You need to form clot You need that fiber and scaffolding And then you need platelets If you don't have platelets, you don't form clot Because they make the actual plug onto the scaffolding um Now, the fibrin is basically what 's been researched for the past ten to fifteen years, and that 's where all of our blood transfusion practices have come from. But the platelets have been relatively ignored, and that 's what my current <clears throat> research is on. So historically, platelets were thought to solely be that mechanical plug that comes onto the active scaffolding. Um, in fact, nothing. It, well, so And they were thought that um, They were pretty innate They were basically just like a little piece Of something that acted as a Mechanical plug But nothing's really further from the truth In reality they're very Physiologically and biologically And mechanistically active Depicted like you see here This is someone's representation Of the function of a platelet And everything that goes on With the platelet um, which is a ton and probably just the tip of the iceberg for this. So currently my research focuses on identifying the specific biologic, functional, and molecular uh, platelet dysfunction following injury with the ultimate goal of hopefully having some targeted therapies like we do for the fibrin issues for platelets. So that clot can be formed and bleeding can stop. And that's kind of where we are right now in this research. Now, as a side note, because I love bleeding and stopping bleeding, um, I want to tell you about kind of one other major innovation that came to us from military research, and it's part of a field we refer to as topical hemostatics, meaning something we can put on the top of something to stop bleeding. Um, like a wound or a leg that's blown off or something like that, where you could just put a dressing on that will actually stop the bleeding. Now this is just one example of this area of topical hemostatics. It's what we call combat gauze. And it's actually a sterile rag that comes in this little pouch and it's impregnated with this. This is kaolin. It's clay. It's a naturally occurring inorganic mineral. It has no allergic potential. It's not exothermic. Um, And what it does is basically what fibrin does. It creates a scaffolding, an exoskeleton of that area for one's own clotting factors and platelets to concentrate on in that area, and it forms clot. And it's actually pretty impressive. At San Francisco General, we have it in the operating rooms. It actually comes in multiple forms. It comes in these long dressings. It comes in these sterile rags that we use. We have it in the operating rooms. And when we have that coagulopathic, that bad kind of bleeding, and we can't do anything surgically to fix it, we will sometimes pack the area that's bleeding with this combat gauze, leave someone's abdomen open, like if it's a liver, where the problem is, leave someone's abdomen open and come back a day later. And a day later, clot has formed, the patient has stopped bleeding, and we can remove the rags and close their abdomen. So finally, let's come back to our patient. Um, She was a six-year-old girl, hit by the car, she's bleeding. We've diagnosed it with the fast scan and we've taken her emergently to the operating room. So I'll tell you what we found. We opened her abdomen and found that her liver was cracked in half. Uh, There was no obvious bleeding vessels that we could suture closed, and she was bleeding a lot. So we put the combat gauze around this whole area to create what we call a tamponade effect. It Basically, the pressure of it will stop the bleeding, plus the kaolin on the combat gauze will help us with the scaffolding. And then we use the massive transfusion protocol that we have to replace her blood with the appropriate ratios so that she gets her clotting factors back and platelets back. And then additionally, she got TXA um, to help prevent the breakdown of the clot that she's forming. Now with all of those treatments, Her bleeding slowed, and we were able to get her to the ICU. And over the next 18 hours, she stabilized. She required uh, no further blood transfusion, and we took her back to the operating room uh, the following day, opened her abdomen again, and uh, we were able to remove those packs without any evidence of bleeding at the liver site. Amazingly, she walked out of the hospital 30 days later to go back to her family and her toys and her life. Um, and back to the person that she was. So my final message for you is that although we kind of continue to push forward with this research to discover new therapeutics and eventually turn clotting factors into drugs that we can deliver, um, we still need the help from all of you and your communities for our most precious resource, which is blood, Um, and if your health allows, blood donation truly does save lives every day. And there's no better reward uh, than being a part of the lives of our community and the injured populations and seeing them, like this little girl, walk out of the hospital uh, and go on living their lives. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.